Good morning. Glad to have you here. Welcome to Trinity Grace. My name is Armstead Booker. I'm the Director of Communications here, and this is a reading from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in their numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Throaz. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samarath. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thryantria named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake 
that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. Now they want to get rid of us quietly? No! Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they had heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, there's so much going on in this uh, In this story, in this chapter of Acts, I pray that you would draw out uh, by your Holy Spirit exactly the things that we need to hear as a church family this morning. I pray um, that you would push back distraction and discouragement and God, anything that would prevent us from hearing the still small voice of your Spirit. Uh, I pray that each person here would just have uh, a genuine encounter with you, with your love, with uh, the invitation of your Spirit to to move beyond uh, whatever... um, yeah, smaller, selfish places we may have been living this week to, uh, to the expanse of, of your love, your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we just surrender this moment to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to tell you two great ways uh, to become bored, unsatisfied, and disappointed uh, with your life as a follower of Jesus. Um, and you're like, oh, there's two. That's fantastic. Um, I, I think that these two, two ways probably work uh, to become uh, disillusioned and ready to give up on any relationship, um, but I'm, I'm, I know they work, from personal experience, I know they work uh, for becoming bored and unsatisfied and disappointed with God. And so if you're just looking for a little enthusiastic message to carry you into your summer, like how do I get a little more disaffected, disillusioned in my relationship with God, I've got the answers for you. Uh, the first way is to primarily think about God only in terms of making you feel better. That's the, fir- the first way uh, to become bored, unsatisfied, and, and, uh, and disappointed with, with life uh, with God. Now, for many of us, this is, this is, uh, we have to make a, a distinction here at the, at the beginning because 
all of our experiences are going to differ you know, from person to person, but the reality is for many of us, when we came into a relationship with God for the first time, it actually did really, truly make us feel better in a, in a, in a meaningful way. Many of us can, can look back at times in our life where we felt guilt or shame or disconnection and and. God and, and the, the things that are true about God, God's character, God's love, the fruit of the Spirit came, came crashing into our life in a merciful encounter, and we, we felt the lifting of shame. We felt the removal of guilt. We, we felt connected to God. Many of us know what it's like to feel anxious or depressed and to have God speak shalom to, to our hearts or to, to sort of like be with us and nurture us in the midst of, of, of an of a inky black depression. And so God does really make us feel better at times. Some of you will know what it feels like to be trapped or stuck in a particular season of your life and God comes in and, and brings freedom and brings life and, and sort of help, helps move you beyond that, that, that space. But at some point, this is, this is really important, if we only think about God in terms of how he's, going, how he's making us feel better, what it does is it begins to narrow down the space that we're willing to engage with God and, and it begins to shrink, shrink down narrower and narrower to just sort of like the sphere right around us and the sphere that we're aware of in, in our own feelings. Basically, we start to get to the place where if we can't see how God is directing us to feel better, then we become reluctant to, to, to take God's leading. Like if I can't track, if I can't see around the corner to how whatever God is asking me to do is going to directly affect my feelings in a way that I think will be positive, then I'm sort of like, I'm not sure I'm really on board for that. And what, even though in the beginning, like caring about how God has made us feel can be important and really significant, if that's the sum total, we will eventually become very bored and unsatisfied and disillusioned with our relationship with God because we'll just be measuring it based on on how we can see around the corner. And that kind of undercuts faith, <laughs> undercuts this, this possibility of God leading us beyond the boundary of our experience, beyond the boundary of our even understanding of what we need in a given moment. Because right, we start to miss that we're on this shared mission of love together, that actually like our comfort and convenience this is hard, right, for Americans to remember. Our comfort and convenience are not the, 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 the primary arbiters of what's good. <laughs> like we can get sort of in the, beaten down by the, busy, the busyness of the circumstances of life into a place where we're just, or the pain of life, where we're just able to think about my own comfort, my own convenience. But if we're really on a shared mission of love together, what, what we'll find is that often... <laughs> It's, it's a place beyond our comfort zone, beyond the, 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 the space of our convenience where, where God's activity is the most vibrant, the most full, the most alive, actually outside of our comfort zone, outside of our convenience, maybe that is the place where this whispered, abundant life that Jesus promised is. So if you are bored, unsatisfied, disillusioned with your relationship with God, ask yourself the question, have I just been asking God to make me feel better? You can ask God to make you feel better, and quite often God will, but if that's it, you're in a pretty narrow space, and there might not be much room to live there. The second thing, uh, second, you know, like they're probably going to ask me to do a conference on this. The second way to become bored, unsatisfied, and disappointed with God is to primarily direct God. 
attempt to be the director of God in your life instead of sort of allowing a relational give and take, of course, but, 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 but trusting that God is, is meant to and can direct you. So the first way is that you just think about how God is gonna make you feel better. The second way is, is you become the director of God in your life. And so God essentially just becomes a projection of your needs and your life goals, and maybe he's there as conveniently as a life coach from time to time, but you are basically steering the ship. When we only deal with God in these sort of categories, in these spaces in our life, it primarily leads us back, back again and again to types of thoughts like, Gosh, life is really hard. I'm not getting the comfort I want at the level that, that I want it. What's really the point of this God thing? And we start to let a bunch of other things sort of creep in. Maybe this other pursuit will make me feel better. Or, or God's not coming through as I had hoped. And so maybe, maybe this whole thing is, is, is not worth it in the first place. Here's what I'm trying to say is that if God is just a life improvement plan for us, like if we take the relational aspect of it and it just becomes sort of like a religious program that we're trying to follow, it's gonna flatten out really quickly. And many of you will find it to be boring, unsatisfying, disappointing. So I bring all this exciting stuff up because we're in the last week of a series on the Holy Spirit, which we, which we began uh, on Pentecost and we've looked in some detail at the day of Pentecost when the, when the promised Holy Spirit fell on the first followers of Jesus. We, did, we took that in two parts and looked at that, that, that day when the, when the Spirit came and the church was birthed, when people were filled with the life of God in a way that was like, it was mysterious and baffling and they, they spoke in other languages and there was miracles taking place, but it also led to some very matter of fact, like community and sharing and generosity and eating meals together and taking one another into their lives. And it's the birth of the church and whatever else we want to account for the stream that we're in all these thousands of years later, it began with this Holy Spirit coming crashing into, into their lives. And then we took a, a, a week and we sort of drew back and we looked at Romans 8 and the very personal benefits that come into our life when the Holy Spirit comes crashing in. Some of you will remember that, that on Father's Day. We said the Holy Spirit brings life to your body. Like there's a way that you become alive as a person when the Spirit of God fills you. That you, that you, that you weren't before that, that encounter. It is that significant. Whatever it means to be born in a new way. That, that the Holy Spirit gives us a, a reliable way to change. That's beyond just the, the normal pattern of human willpower. That the Holy Spirit confirms our adoption into the family of God. That beautiful phrase in Romans 8. The Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That the Holy Spirit secures our inheritance. That says, as, as blasphemous as this might sound to you, depending on where you come from, that God sees you exactly the way God sees Jesus. And says, you're, you're, you're a co-heir with my son, and I've secured your, that, that, this is the things, and we should celebrate worship like, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Like, we need to sing that and get funky with that, because that, that, that is so true. The Holy Spirit comes crashing into our lives and brings these immense, incredible benefits. We're not going to go back and cover them in the same, same detail. This, this would have happened to these characters in this story, Paul and Silas and Timothy. They would have experienced these exact things that we've talked about. But here's what I want us to remember on this last week of the Pentecost series. A huge also 
in our relationship with God is the Holy Spirit doesn't simply do a personal work in us. And I know most of you know that, but like we can sort of start to move it into this category where the Holy Spirit does kind of spiritual magic tricks that gives Christians goosebumps and makes them feel better, and that's primarily all the Holy Spirit does. Like the Holy Spirit like comes in on the bridge of my favorite song and really makes me feel nice about being in church. It's like, you know what, I am glad I got up and came on over here. You know, like I had, had a coffee, but now I'm really feeling, thank you, Holy Spirit. I think I'm going to just, you know, like maybe I'll go to the park later. Like, like the Holy Spirit is just here to sort of make us feel better or, may, or help me fulfill my life goals. Like, Holy Spirit, give me enough energy to get through Tuesday. Like, and, and I'm not diminishing that. I'm with you. Like, we need help, of course. But this story, I think, helps. It's just I've just pulled like a chapter right out of the middle of, of the mission of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, so that we could be reminded the Holy Spirit also propels us and equips us for a life and mission of sacrificial love. And that actually, sacrificial love will regularly, led by the Holy Spirit, sacrificial love will regularly take us out of the American safe zone of comfort and convenience into a place that we can't always see around the corner, but when we get there, we will realize that actually this is the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. It's, it's not just like sort of sitting in a, in a still place and asking God to revolve around me and make my life better and achieve my goals, but actually say, no, the Holy Spirit of God has, has given me life and enlivened me and is carrying me forward to pour out and to then perpetually be filled. And that is the abundant life. It is an overflow of, of an outflow of love in our life. That, that is actually real abundance. As easy it is because, right, you can feel how you feel. You're inside your own skin. You're inside your own mind. So it's very easy that the first concern you wake up with in the morning is how I'm doing. And the second concern that hits you is like, how's my life going? And if we only stay in those two places, it will make for a pretty eventually boring, unsatisfying disillusioning, frustrating, disappointing life with God because it's never meant to just occupy this space of self. So this chapter, like I said, right in the middle of the book of Acts, and, and here's what you see is this sort of pattern that you see in Acts 16, especially towards the end of the book, it just takes place over and over again. They keep impacting these wild forms of resistance. They keep showing the love of God in tangible ways and miraculous ways and like ex explanatory ways and in, in, in generous loving ways. And they keep getting resistance and God pr keeps bringing breakthrough and keeps carrying them forward. And, and somehow Paul, like later in the book, like he, he's giving an account of his life and he's just like, oh, he's like, I'm bitten by snakes, I'm falling off off ships, I'm in the ocean, I froze to death, I didn't eat anything, people beat me up, then they, they lifted me up, they beat me up again, and I was like, and it's like, it's like uh, this is amazing, this is life, You're like, something's going on with this person, that they have a source that's like sort of perpetually refilling itself, that I, I want to know what's up with that, I want to, I want to tap into that, and I, I want to promise you, on the authority of God, that it's available to you as New Yorkers in 2019. One of the quickest ways to be miserable is to simply let our own comfort and convenience be the measure of what is good. 
So here we are. All right, let's just get into the story, can we? Because we've got a lot. It's like, okay, we're, we've, we've used too much time in introduction. You guys got to relax, right? As the chapter begins, Paul is inviting uh, this follower of Jesus named Timothy to join their travels and missions. So we're, we, we know there's going to be some more with Paul, and the adventures of Paul and Timothy later in, in the New Testament. But here we're meeting Timothy, and he's being invited to come along on Paul's mission. We get a little background on Timothy. It says that he has a Jewish mother and that he has a Greek father. But then it says that Paul decides, Timothy's, we, we think, at least uh, an older teenager, a grown man, and Paul decides to circumcise him. This is especially like the ladies' favorite subject to come up in, 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 the, in church, circumcision. Let's do this. Right, so discomfort for Timothy aside, this raises a couple of questions for us. So uh, earlier in the same book of Acts, Paul has refused to circumcise someone when, when Jewish Christians, who were basically like one of the hot debates as this movement of Jesus was move, moving forward was, do you have to become Jewish before you can become Christian? And how Jewish do you need to be to really be a Christian? And so there was a debate about circumcision. Did new converts to the, to the movement of Jesus, if they were coming from a Gentile background, need to be circumcised first? And Paul resolutely says absolutely not that we are, we are brought into the family of God by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and there's no outward symbol like circumcision that justifies us to God and to one another. This is something that happens by grace and yet with Timothy, it says he goes ahead and circumcises him. If I'm Timothy, I'm like, hang on, hang on. Remember what you said? Justified by grace? Put your knife away. So one instance, he refuses and stands firm and says, we're accepted because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, nothing outward. And here he just circumcises Timothy. And the reason that's given in the text seems to be that he doesn't want this to be a discussion as they go along their way. Basically, like he's like, this will be more convenient if you're to go ahead and get circumcised. Again, if I'm Timothy, I'm like, let's talk about this more. But he says, no. We're going to be going through these areas where it will be something that people will bring up. I want to keep the main thing the main thing. I want to be focusing on the message and love of Jesus. And we're going to be entering these territories where it will just be easier if we go ahead and circumcise you now. So we're going to circumcise you and then we're going to take about a three-week hike. Perfect. That sounds great. I'm in. So Paul, and quite painfully Timothy, is doing something unnecessary for the sake of love. For the sake of, of making Jesus clear to a bunch of people who are already going to have a ton of barriers to belief. And so Paul's like, one of these we can remove. And yes, it is, it is certainly costly in your, in your case, but one of these we can remove so that we can focus primarily on, is Jesus really Israel's Messiah? Like when we come into the synagogue, we don't have to have all these other peripheral debates first. To me, this is really important. It's like a sort of a, a, a detail that's easy to like sort of turn, turn your head at or, or, or even, even chuckle at a little bit. But this is a reminder to me that the kingdom of God is a relational kingdom. It's not just a religious plan that's laid out for us to follow. Because in one instance, Paul refuses adamantly to circumcise, and in this instance, he just does it because it seems to be more convenient. And so we're not dealing with just a religious plan that's laid out for, for us to follow. We're dealing with a relational kingdom that requires intimacy to know what to do. If you don't want to be bored and disillusioned and, and unsatisfied with your walk with God, you have to access the reality of the relationship that's available to you by the Holy Spirit. 
That God is not saying, I want you to show up here 80 years from now at the end of your life, and I hope you've done it right. I've packed your bags with some things that you're going to need. He's saying, I want you to take a left here. I want you to pause here. I want you to, I want you to sit down. I want you to, to have a meal. Like, it's, it's a, a much more personal, daily, directive, relational way of life. We, we see this playing out even more in the next thing that happens. I wanted to show a couple of gifts of the Holy Spirit that we don't talk about very often that show up in, in, in this story that I think are really helpful. We're gonna move through a few of them pretty quickly, but the first is the Holy Spirit and the gift of prevention. And here's what I mean. The text says, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of, of Phrygia and Galatia and having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia... When they came to the border of Mysia, they, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. So twice in, the, in those few verses, it says that they were prevented from going somewhere to do what? To preach the gospel of Jesus. Now, you remember how the book of Acts begins, right? Jesus is with his followers. There ends up being about 120 of them. But he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to carry this movement. He's been, like, preparing them. I'm going to leave. The Spirit's going to come. You're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to do it in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. So this is the mission, they're supposed to go into places where people don't know the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and, and preach it. This is, this is exactly what they're supposed to do. It is an unimpeachable good. It's in, directly in line with what they're supposed to be doing, and yet the Holy Spirit stops them. Just think about that for a minute and, and come back to this reality that we're not just given a religious plan to follow. We're given a person to walk with. The Holy Spirit prevents them from doing an unimpeachable good, something that is, is part of their mission, is directly connected to what Jesus said they were supposed to do. Now, and the thing is, here's the thing. We don't know how the Holy Spirit stops them. It's just given to us as a detail. The Holy Spirit prevented them. How? You don't know. Like, charismatics are like, obviously it was a dream. Or, or a Pentecostals, like, someone gave a pr- prophetic word, and they, and they took it, and they knew, hey, don't go, into the prov- don't, don't go into this province. Presbyterians are like, obviously, they were having their quiet time that morning, and they were reading in Judges, and a passage leapt out to them. And they're like, oh, yes, I can see now that we're not supposed to go into this region. It's from my Bible study, clearly. So it's like, was it a charismatic halting, or was it a Presbyterian halting, or was it like just circumstances? They literally just couldn't get papers to cross the border, and the circumstances were too much, and they had to go another way. And then later they were like, that was probably the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the non-denominational way. (laughs) But they were prevented somehow by the Holy Spirit from doing something that that would have been right in line with their calling, right? No one could have outwardly critiqued them if they went into these regions and preached the message of Jesus. This is what they're supposed to be doing, and yet they were stopped. There is a gift from the Holy Spirit of prevention, of doing something very good so that they can show up somewhere else. The old saints that I grew up with used to say, the need is not the call, and, and, right, and then they would very quickly say, now that's not an excuse to just sit around and be lazy and not share the generous love of God that we've received when we have opportunities to. But the reality is the need is always going to be more than any one of us can, can sustainably even begin to approach. And, and it's, it's, 
The need is not the call, is a way to keep the relationship primary. Because then the call is the call, right? It's the Mary and Martha dynamic, right? Martha's busy setting up the house for Jesus and his friends, and she's frustrated because Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. Now, she doesn't know if Jesus is tired or hungry or how long he's staying. Mary's sitting at his feet. You think if, if Jesus was like, can I get some water, it wouldn't be exactly and specifically the thing that Jesus wanted to be done, done, right? So the relationship is primary. Jesus, when he's with his closest friends in John 15, he says, you've got to abide in me. It's like our relationship needs to be like a branch to a tree. That's how the sap of my life flows through and produces the fruit of the kingdom. Apart from me, you can't do anything. Or simply following a disembodied, non-relational religious plan won't bring the fruit of the kingdom. Even if you're doing a lot of good things and exhausting yourself with them. He prevented them from going to these regions so they could show up somewhere else. It's keeping the relationship primary. So sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of prevention. And the text, and I want to get to the emotional weight of this for a second, because the text doesn't leave you hanging very long. Like just a sentence or two later, they get the direction of where they're supposed to go instead. But I want to tell you that uh, I, I looked at some maps and there's 200 miles between where they're first prevented from going into a place and where they end up in Troas. Now, they're not traveling by train, and they're not traveling with any vehicle. They're traveling by foot for 200 miles. We're talking about at least two to three weeks of walking together, and depending on how much they stop. And, and we get, like, this is something you have to remember when you're reading Acts in the Gospels. Like, something happens here, and then, like, we're in a totally other town, right? A lot happens in that, in that sentence. So just, I'm not trying to be graphic here, but Timothy's sore. And he just came on with these guys to go preach the gospel. Like, the enthusiasm of the first call, like, all right, I'm leaking up. They've seen something in me. They want me to come along. We're going. Al, this is really just uncomfortable. I've been circumcised. Now I'm walking. I'm hiking every day for hours and hours, 200 miles to Troas. We can't go. How much second guessing do you think there was? How much frustration? Paul, really? This is what you want to do? Like, where are we? What are we doing? I'm so uncomfortable. I just want you to know, like, it gets really quickly to the direction point, but there's a lot of human emotion and frustration and hand-wringing and second-guessing and questioning, because you guys know what this is like. When something seems obviously good to you and God prevents it from happening, you're like, what are you doing? And there's 200 miles, three weeks between this and that, and we just... Go by in the text in a blink. So we need to wring out the emotional sort of juice a little bit. Finally, they do get to Troas. And they do get the Holy Spirit gives the gift of direction. So the Holy Spirit sometimes gives us the gift of prevention, even for things that seem obviously good. And then the Holy Spirit gives the gift of direction. This time it says Paul had a vision. This was a Pentecostal direction. Paul had a vision of a man from, from Macedonia calling out, asking for help. So they've been wandering for three weeks. All of a sudden, is Paul delirious? Is he dehydrated? He sees a man from Macedonia. It's like, hey, Paul, come and help us. That's how their accent sounds. I did some research, looked it up. In the Greek, it sounded like that. All right, you know what, relax, that was funny, people. I'm trying here, it's the middle of the summer. Okay, here we go. So, 
he has this vision of this man from Macedonia calling for help. So for those of us who are looking for, for direction from God, one thing I think it's important to pay attention to is when God puts someone in your line of sight, physically or spiritually, that is in need. When God puts someone in your line of sight and makes you aware of a particular need, it's, it's, it's time to ask the question, is God directing me to help meet this need? Is this one of the ways God is, is, is giving me direction in my life, the way that he's going to pour out some of what he's deposited into my life, into this situation, and, and, and let me be a full participant in the kingdom of God coming on earth in this specific way as it is in heaven? So like, pay attention to your sphere of relationships that you're in. And when a need comes up and your heart is moved towards it, sometimes that's God giving you direction to move, to, to move out towards that need. Some, sometimes you need to pay attention to the span of compassion. What is the thing that you hear about that causes your heart to race a little bit? You're like, this is not right. I, something should be done about this. Maybe that's because God's prompting you to, to, to move out in that direction. Maybe you know I have some gifts, material gifts or spiritual gifts that can help in this particular way. Or if you get a spiritual prompting to go and help someone, pay attention. I know that's like remarkably simple, but the Apostle Paul and his traveling band of missionaries, that's how they were directed from Troas to Philippi is they had a vision of someone asking for help, and they said, okay, and they woke them, like, they concluded after all the wandering for two or three weeks, this must be where we're supposed to go. So I just wanna say that to you. When God gives those promptings in your life, don't ignore them, because all that follows comes because they take this prompting. The Holy Spirit does indeed give us direction. Right, we have to remove this idea that God is like sort of like a maze master playing tricks on us. And he's like, oh, you took a wrong turn like three years ago and I'm still a little miffed about it. I'm not gonna be showing you any of my will for quite some time, thank you very much. Or we're like, oh, I know what type of sinner you are so I'm not gonna be showing you what I, no, that's not how God works, right? He's, he loves to show mercy. He longs to, to remove the scales from our eyes. He longs to give us promptings. He longs to involve us. He, he longs to draw us along. We need to, he, he's not up there like playing a trick on you that, that I have no idea what God wants me to do. Well, there's actually kind of a lot already really clearly laid out. So they get to the point where they, they know they're gonna make another voyage by ship this time, and they arrive at Philippi. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One who was listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. Then she persuaded us. So we have the Holy Spirit preventing. We have the Holy Spirit giving uh, direction. And now we have the Holy Spirit leading them right to a point of intersection of his activity in the world. They get to the city, there's not even a synagogue. Their normal pattern was to go to the synagogues and begin to reason that Jesus really was the Messiah for, for the nation of Israel. There's not a synagogue there, so they go out to this prayer meeting at a river, and while they're there, they meet the purple cloth dealer. Now, we, we might fly right past this detail, but Lydia was a person of means, uh, she was in, in fashion, she was, you know, she's selling cloth and she's not selling low-end cloth, she's not selling at Marshall, she's the Vera Wang, essentially, of northern Greece here. 
She, she's, she's dealing in, in, in high-end fabrics. Like, I, don't, I asked my wife. I was like, who do I say here? She's like, Vera Wang works. I was like, all right, cool. That's how we do it at our house. God has been deeply stirring in her life. Right, all the times they were prevented, like, God, why, why are we not going into this region? They're stopped from going into the, two times they've been prevented, a long journey. Now they've been on a ship, all of it to show up right there beside the river and meet the purple cloth dealer, Lydia. Why? Because God had been doing a deep work in Lydia's life. She's at this weird, she's a woman of means and she's at the weird river prayer meeting. She's on a spiritual search. She's like, I'm willing to try anything. And all of a sudden, she encounters these travelers who unfold this message about Jesus. And it says that her heart was open to what they said, that she responded. Now, here's the reason you you take the relational direction of the Holy Spirit. Because he will lead you to places of intersection. He will lead you to the places where God's already been at work. And he's given you a key that unlocks a situation and all of a sudden you get to have a full share in the joy of the life of God pouring out in a place, the healing of God pouring out in a place, the forgiveness of God being ministered in a place, the generosity of God being demonstrated in a place, the, the love, the truth, whatever it is, God, God will lead you to places of intersection. Right, if you're just like, I just gotta get through my week and then get to my Netflix queue, it's about my comfort and convenience. Many of us will miss these intersection opportunities where God's like, I want you to know you got a, f- part of your inheritance is this life of sacrificial love that is more abundant than the American dream ever could be. Can you believe that? It says that Lydia, the Vera Wang of northern Greece, and all the members of her household were baptized. They're swept into the story of the kingdom of God. We gotta keep rolling. The next thing is the Holy Spirit gives the gift of endurance in the face of resistance. The next part of the story gets really wild. Um, Verse 16, once they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by, uh, oh, yeah, Another quick detail, it switches tenses of narration here and all of a sudden you get a we coming in. So another maybe reason why they had been directed to to Troas, a lot of scholars think, is that they picked up Luke and Troas who becomes the ones who's recounting a bunch of these details and he gets to see them firsthand. So he's saying Paul and his companions, Paul and his companions. Then they get to Troas and it's like we, 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 we're going together. So, So maybe one of the other reasons they were prevented from going in the beginning was they needed to get to Troas and pick up Luke so they could meet the Vera Wang of northern Greece and her whole house would be baptized. All right? That's where we're at now. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. Paul has a spiritual gift of annoyance. This is such a New York gift. Right, he's, he's the George Costanza of spiritual gifts right here. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So they began to experience some level of resistance in the form of kind of like being mocked and annoyed. And, and this is something I was thinking about. Like some of you won't be taken out in your life because you embezzle from your company. It won't be the dramatic affair or maybe even your pornography addiction or, or your bad temper. Like you'll simply just be taken out by like small annoyances. 
And like eventually you're just like, this isn't worth it. These people are annoying. I, I don't like them, right? And you stay in that little s- sort of self-cage of comfort and convenience and you're not willing to move out towards the other and eventually it's just too much. And actually when I first heard what she's shouting, I'm like, what's the big deal? She's sort of like their hype, hype man or hype woman. She's going around like, yeah, most high God, bring in the salvation. Who's with me? Give it up for Paul. And Luke's here from Troas. But it's actually more likely that she was mocking them from the start. Because when you say most high God in Philippi in this particular time, you're not talking about Jesus, certainly. You're not probably even talking about the the Jewish Yahweh. You're thinking Zeus. And you're not talking like, is, is, is bringing salvation is not like bringing like forgiveness for my sins because Jesus died for me on the cross and now I'm brought into the family of God and filled with his spirit and, and carried off into his kingdom. No, it's like he's gonna make your crops better this year or he's gonna improve your business. So like we need to hear it with those ears. She's walking around saying, Zeus will help you make your crops better, make your business better, listen to these guys. And that for like Paul, De- now, now you're like, I can't believe he dealt with it for several days. Like what patience he's demonstrated, fruit of the Spirit. He turns around and he shouts at her. Eventually he rebukes her in the specific name of Jesus and it says the Spirit leaves her. But that's not it, actually. Then we see the levels of resistance ratchet up. There's the, there's the, the, the like directly spiritual, which we don't see very much and weirds us out. Like the actual reality, like many of you are like, I'm totally fine with resistance internally, like my own, my own sin and selfishness and struggle, and I'm under, I under systemic resistance in the world, uh, ra- racism and economic oppression and all, all, all war, and the, but, but like the devil, I'm not as like, and like actual, like an, an accuser or a spirit that could possess or oppress someone, like I'm not, but this happens like all the time in the New Testament and they don't even blink an eye at it. So this woman is like filled with a spirit by which she predicts the future and she's mocking these, these men of God who've come to, to, to bring this, this message of love and Paul rebukes her in the, name of this, in the name of Jesus and the spirit leaves her but then the resistance ratchets up, right? There's people that were using this woman for their own personal profit and, there were, and, and, and they sort of appeal to Roman culture. So you see personal resistance, economic and systemic resistance, cultural resistance. We see these, these headings in the New Testament and throughout the scriptures that as followers of Jesus, we're, we're, we're up against resistance on three large fronts, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The systemic resistance of the world, the internal sort of operating system of life without God, and then the actual spiritual forces that are against the kingdom of God. And in, in this story, you see it, right, in the Roman customs that are appealed to the world and the frustration of those merchants who were using this woman. They were using her, exploiting her, putting profit above other people. Their, their operating system without God involved the flesh and then actually the spirit that possesses her. All three forms of resistance show up in this, in this story. And they show faith and endurance, like it literally is no small thing that they endured it for several days before finally est- like establishing the victory of Jesus in this situation and this woman being set free. But where does that land them? It lands them in jail. Like this is why our comfort and convenience as the arbiter of our life direction is not enough, right? Because like I'm following God's plan, I've been prevented <laughs> from going to these places that seemed obviously good. I'm following God's plan, I'm showing endurance, faith, and courage, and now they end up in jail. Like, 
How could this possibly be God's plan? Verse 25, about, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling before Paul and Silas, he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they've been showing endurance and faith in the midst of this resistance on every level, and it lands them in jail. So what do you do when you're absolutely stuck? Worship. What do you do when you're absolutely stuck? Worship. This is something the scriptures teach over and over again, like, Worship is, is not just about us feeling better. It actually is a way to access a new reality. It's actually a way to pull yourself out of being stuck, to stand in an intersection where I don't know where to go at all, and to worship the true nature of who God is, to celebrate God's promises as if they're true, to not just like say that they're true, but to allow your emotions to rise up in joy at the reality of them being true. That's what it is to worship. It's to, to put God in the place that God belongs and say, I'm gonna allow my affections and attention and adoration to rise up in worship to God. The, the, the Holy Spirit gives us the gift of worship to access a new reality in the world. And we see it like so tangibly, like object lesson demonstrated in this particular story. They're finally, after everything else, stuck in jail. And they worship, and then all of a sudden they're not stuck anymore. The, the, I know that like, this is such an incredible story that we can like sort of have a, a, a skeptical level of distance from it. The reality is this doesn't just work in F F Philippian jails. It works with like, real strongholds in our life. Like I remember the guy who helped counsel me through my first anxiety attacks was talking to me about the power of worship when my willpower doesn't seem strong enough to change the pattern of thinking in my mind. Like I literally can't make myself not think something that's driving me really anxious or really depressed. One thing I can do is stop and hold that thought captive and say I don't think this is the truest reality about me and then worship. And worship became a way in my life to access a new reality. And it wasn't like it would happen like halfway through the first song every time. Sometimes it would be five minutes. Sometimes it would be an hour. Sometimes it would be the next day. But almost always as I began to really worship and my emotions began to catch up with what my mind was saying and I allowed my affections to rise up to the true nature of who God is, what God's promises say, of over and above what my little mind and its ticker tape might be repeating to myself. I accessed a new reality. I was utterly stuck in my anxiety and, and I began to experience freedom and he had this like bonkers way of thinking about it. All that resistance that I mentioned earlier, like even if you just take one, just the enemy, the spiritual side of it, just the devil, the, the, the demonic, like let's say that there really is, just for the sake of argument, the demonic. And let's say there really was a struggle between God and these, these spiritual forces before this all came around and the issue was over worship. And this accuser, the Satan, in Hebrew the accuser, was, was cast out over the issue of worship. Now that means that worship holds a pretty significant place in the cosmic struggle then. Which is why it seems that God sends the Israelites to Jericho with the trumpet, as Michael mentioned earlier. It brings the walls down when they worship. And, and 
I, I don't even have time to get into all, all that I've heard about people, like the reality and power of worship and spiritual warfare. But this is what my, 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 my friend and counselor and mentor said. He's like, let's say the enemy is attacking you with a thought of, of accusation, right? To make you anxious. What do you do? Do you stand there and try to feel differently? You try to do something differently? You're just getting attacked? It's like what you can do is immediately run to worship. So if every single time this thought is pounding your mind and you run to worship, right? That, like let's say there's a spiritual force that's at work here. If the enemy is attacking your mind with accusation and anxiety and depression, you're never gonna be and you're always gonna be and this is always gonna be true of you and shame, 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 and you go to worship, right? Every single time you run over here and you start to say, Jesus, I thank you that I'm hidden in you. I thank you that on the cross you said it is finished. That means that my identity has taken a fundamental shift. I'm received and accepted by your love and mercy, that you made me in your image, that you delighted me, that I'm your son, and whom you say you're well pleased, that you fill me with everything that I need. You give me every gift in the spiritual places. I just worship you. I sing hallelujah. My soul makes its boast in you, God. I, I don't, I'm not even gonna listen to my own mind, which is playing in repeat this anxiety. I worship you because you said your peace is beyond human understanding. It guards my heart and mind in Christ Jesus, even when my rationale is failing me. My rationale is failing me, but I worship you that your peace is beyond human. All of a sudden, I'm in a different place. All of a sudden, I'm in a... <laughs> Here's the thing. Like, You want to know why that just comes out of me? It's because for years, I literally had a note card with a lot of that written on it. And as soon as I was having an anxiety attack, I'd read that with all my might. I'd put the worship on. I'd be like, I'm sorry, Allison, we gotta go here for a minute. Let's praise, you know, like, and it wasn't, it was about worshiping God. But the reality was, it also became that God would, would, would demonstrate his embrace and he would shake that little prison that I was in and the door would come open. And he and my mentor would say, you know what, the enemy hates that. He's like, would rather you be apathetic than worshiping? So what you'll see is this will start to trail off. Every time you go to worship, the enemy's like, I'm basically driving this guy to praise. Every time I attack in this particular way, I'm driving this person to worship. And he's like, write it down how many times it has to happen in a week. I bet you'll see a tailing off. And I was like, what? And it was true. There is such power in worship to access a new reality. doors of the prison open up, right? On Alpha, we just, we have been mentioning it so much. We walk through folks who are processing from all different spectrum of, uh, uh, on the belief spectrum. And we're talking about like when coincidences happen, like is it God or is it because you prayed or is it like how do you get to these intersections? And like maybe this was just when the earthquake was gonna happen anyway. And it happened to be that it was gonna destroy the jail. I don't know, but they're worshiping and asking God for breakthrough and they get breakthrough right at that, at that given moment. To me, I'm like, yeah, when I worship and pray, I start to see the activity of God in coincidental ways a lot more often than I did before. And then you have this jailer who says, what must I do to be saved, right? Initially, he's so concerned that he's gonna be on the hook for these prisoners escaping that he knows he's gonna be killed, so he's at the verge of suicide, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, we want to take that and put that into like the, the American evangelical sort of paradigm of what he's asking. He's like, how do I be saved? How do I kneel at the altar and fill out the card and say that I'd like to be baptized? He's basically, he's not, 
I, I wanna tell you he's not primarily concerned about saving his soul right now. He's primarily concerned about saving his booty. He's like, I'm gonna be killed. One of the scholars I read translates, basically he slides in front of Paul and Silas. He's like, how do I get out of this mess? Like, what, am I, what do I do? And they're like, chill, everyone's still here. And then they deal with, like, he, he brings up the surface level need is so often that's the only place we can start. How do I get out of this mess? And, and God's like, yes. But also, let me talk to you about your very life source. Let me talk to you about your, your spiritual reality. Let me talk to you about the way the world really works. And it says that this man is rescued from his situation, but also rescued in a spiritual way to come to belong. In the same way, the purple cloth dealer in her house was baptized. The jailer in his household are baptized. Worship breaks the stronghold and it transforms another intersection, this man's life. The last spiritual gift I wanna mention because I don't think it comes up very much is, is the Holy Spirit and the gift of defiance. And I'm not talking about like selfish, petulant defiance that like you see in, in, a, in a child. I'm talking about like uh, looking at the system of the world and saying, no, in certain areas, there's places I have to say no to this. No, I'm a child of God. I'm not going to go that way. As appealing as you might look, make, make it seem, as normal as this is, I have to say no to this. There's, a, there's another uh, operating system that I work on. There's a different paradigm that I'm starting from. And Paul basically like, he's like, gets set free very dramatically, and they're like, could you just please leave? And he's like, no, I'm a Roman citizen. If you're gonna, if you're gonna like, let the weight of that fall on me in accusation, then I want the reality of that to be demonstrated now. And he makes the magistrates come down and apologize to him. Like, Paul says, no, you're gonna come down, we're gonna do this in public. You threw us in jail, you humiliated us, now come down and make it right. And they do, and they're like, okay, fine, we're really sorry, we shouldn't have done that, you're a Roman citizen, please just leave town. He's like, we will leave town, but first we're going to Lydia's. We're going to Purple Cloth, purple cloth Dealer's house. So they leave town, but they, they stop at Lydia's first, right? Again, they're saying, as powerful as the forces are that are at work in this city, we are operating by something else. If you live in New York, there's some pretty powerful forces at work in our world. And I want you to know there are times when in this relational connection to the Holy Spirit, there'll be time where, where the Spirit says, no, enough is enough. And, and, and we'll call you to defy the resistance. We'll call you to say, no, this can't happen anymore to stand up for, for justice, to stand up for truth in the face of lies, to, to stand up for, for, for those who are being run over, to stand up for, for, uh, like, for those who are being crushed by this system. Even for your own self at times, when, when it's time to say enough is enough. And I wanna get into so many specifics, but we'll just leave it there. We've covered a lot. The Holy Spirit gives the gift of prevention, of direction, of, of leading us to intersections where God is at work, of giving us endurance in the face of resistance, of showing us how to worship to access a new reality, and then at times, in that relational intimacy of saying, I'll, I want you to say, you, you can come no further, and to stand in spiritual defiance of the forces of this world. So my question to you this morning, church, is how is the Holy Spirit leading you 
Is there a place of prevention? Are you looking for direction? Do you need endurance? Has God led you to an intersection where he's at work? Do you need to access some new reality by, by letting your heart's attention and affection rise up to God in worship? As Americans, we have to constantly hear this, this message that we have to move beyond self. We have to move beyond our comfort and convenience into the wide and wild spaces where God is at work. That is where abundant life is. And he, he, he's gonna lead you out into it. He will comfort you all along the way. Look at all the comfort, but it's not simply comfort as the end-all, be-all. It's comfort so that you're equipped to be sacrificial in your love. N.T. Wright says, the mission of the church is to apply the victory of Jesus through sacrificial love. Church, this summer, in all the places that we'll go, in all the opportunities you'll have to invite someone else in or move towards the other, I pray that the Spirit would fill you with sacrificial love, with a sense that it is, that it is worth enduring in this way of Jesus for the sake of the other, because that is actually true abundant life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wild and radical account, just a, 40 verses, one chapter, and so much takes place. So many ways that you steer and direct and lead and, and embrace and confront. God, I want to live in a vibrant way with you as this story depicts. I pray in the name of Jesus that many in our church would take up the invitation and call to live with you in this vibrant way. Would you call us out of the American zone of comfort and apathy? Would we not just simply think about life in the city is hard, I hope I can manage, but may we be called into something else, called into a wide and beautiful place where, where we're sacrificing, where we're, 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 we're walking with you in love. All through Pentecost, Lord, we have prayed, come Holy Spirit, and so we pray again, come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Show us more of yourself today. Pour out your love on us. Give us your embrace. God, I pray for each person here. They would know the way you're directing them, Holy Spirit. What response they are meant to make. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to come to the communion table in just a moment, but first, we talked a lot about worship in there, and I want to just invite you to stand and just to freely worship God for just a few minutes. Don't worry about anything else for the next few minutes except directing your attention and affection to God, declaring his character, declaring his reality, celebrating it. Let's worship together.